Welcome to Two Open Doors, the podcast that explores our power to open or close the doors of relationship with the important people in our lives. We hope you'll learn from and share your wisdom with our community. Thanks for joining us. Two Open Doors is all about exploring the world of human relationship, but we haven't yet talked about what relationship is. Let's dig into that. We humans swim so naturally in the ocean of relationships that we rarely, if ever, stop to think about what relationship is and what it entails. It's like the fact that we humans live in an ocean of air, yet we rarely think about that. Let's see if we can pull ourselves out of the water and onto shore so that we can gaze out at that ocean. Broadly speaking, a relationship is a connection between two people. The connection can serve specific or broad purposes. It can exist for a brief time or for as long as a lifetime. There are two significantly different kinds of relationships. Transactional relationships connect two people for the purposes of doing an exchange of some sort. One person gives the other something that they want in exchange for something received from the other person. It's a value-for-value sort of proposition, such as when we pay an industrious neighborhood teenager $20 to mow our lawn. Life is full of transactional relationships, which we use to meet our needs. That's true for the brief relationship that we create when we buy something from a business. In fact, many of our personal relationships are also transactional. We may trade some of our personal time to listen to an office mate's complaints about work in exchange for that person seeing us as an ally. In the transactional game of this for that, there's usually little to the transaction beyond the exchange. The second kind of relationship is, in a very real sense, deeper. There seems to be no especially good term for these relationships, which I find interesting and perhaps little telling. We can call them non-transactional, to describe what they're not, or personal relationships. My preference is to think of them as emotional relationships, since much of the purpose of this kind of relationship is to create an emotional connection between two people. The loving and caring connection between a parent and a child is one good example of an emotional relationship. The intimate connection between lovers is another example, as is the rich, multifaceted relationship between two lifelong friends. Emotional relationships aren't driven by a give-get sort of agenda. Instead, they're rooted in the human need for belonging and for social affiliation. Like transactional relationships, emotional relationships fulfill a need, but that need is emotional rather than physical. In the rest of this post, we're going to focus on emotional relationships. Transactional relationships may help keep us alive, fed and sheltered, but it's the emotional relationships that are really the stuff that life is made of. Let's do a brief survey of what's involved in an emotional relationship. First, we need to understand and acknowledge that emotional relationships are literally vital to our survival. You may be familiar with the experiments performed by psychologist Harry Harlow in the 1950s and 1960s. He isolated infant rhesus monkeys from their mothers, and instead of presented the infants with two fake monkeys, one was a wireframe with a stylized face and an integrated feeding bottle. The other was a terry cloth covered soft form with more lifelike face and big wide eyes. 
The infants chose to cling to the soft surrogate mom, only pausing to feed from the bottle-carrying wire mom before returning to the soft one. The infants seemed to be neurologically wired for touch, and they quickly declined in health without that. You may also have read about the unfortunate case of infants in some orphanages who had a mortality rate of 30 to 40 percent, with much of that rate being attributed to insufficient touch and human interaction. Anyone who has experienced intense loneliness, which is to say many or most of us at times, are very aware of the importance of touch and interaction. We humans share a similar neurobiology with primates, and touch is every bit as important to our well-being. Human attachment seems to be mediated by and dependent on the release of the hormone oxytocin when the attached partners are with one another. Oxytocin is sometimes popularly referred to as the love hormone. It is released during sex and in response to physical touch. In addition, the human reward system plays an active role in attachment. We receive a dopamine-mediated reward signal when we're in the presence of someone we're attached to, and the absence of an attachment figure can cause withdrawal-like negative responses in the reward system. Dopamine is sometimes colloquially called the feel-good hormone. It's associated with pleasurable sensations, and it has a role in learning. Attachment is powerful stuff. As biological anthropologist Helen Fisher, Ph.D., notes, love activates the same neurological and reward mechanisms as does addiction. She observes that rejection in love can lead to obsessive behaviors that include, quote, mood swings, craving, obsession, compulsion, distortion of reality, emotional dependence, personality changes, risk-taking, and loss of self-control. These feelings and behaviors are probably familiar to most of us. You can read more about this interesting topic in Dr. Fisher's books, Why We Love and Why Him, Why Her. As a second observation about emotional relationships, we know that they require that both partners in the relationship have enough emotional intelligence to understand one another. You can think of emotional intelligence as the awareness and understanding of human emotions, how they feel, what circumstances trigger them, how people display or externally manifest their internal emotions, and how to recognize them when they occur. You can read more about the fascinating and crucially important topic of emotional intelligence in Daniel Goldman's book, Emotional Intelligence. With such understanding, we're able to empathize with one another. We're able to walk in their shoes. The ability to accurately guess what's going on in someone else's thoughts and emotions is sometimes called theory of mind. That capability is what enables us to know that the agitation we see in our normally calm and even-keeled partner may be due to a bad day at work or to some other upset that probably has nothing to do with us. As a third facet of relationship, both partners need to desire connection with one another and both need to clearly indicate that desire to their partner. Desiring connection is not likely to happen if a partner has any concerns over safety and respect. Those are baseline givens. Similarly, a couple's difficulties or hesitancy to engage in clear and honest communication with one another can make it impossible for them to get on the same wavelength. Without good communication, dreams and desires can't be shared, 
and the inevitable relationship collisions cannot be bridged. Even if we possess good theory of mind capabilities, none of us is a mind reader. We need to let our partners know what we're thinking and feeling, and we rely on and trust them to do the same for us. Knowing that you're loved doesn't mean that you don't need to occasionally hear that from your partner. Relationships involve sharing and negotiation, and good communication skills provide a foundation for those exchanges. Connection is also unlikely to occur if the chemistry between partners isn't right. The partners need to fit one another, and fit is an ambiguous and sometimes mysterious thing. How many times have we seen a couple in which the partners seem, from the outsider's perspective, to have little in common, and who seem to us like trying to mix oil and water, and yet who may have a relationship that may last many decades? Compatibility is an intriguing and puzzling topic in its own right, but we'll save that discussion for another day. It's sufficient to note that compatibility involves physical, mental, and emotional factors, including a spiritual perspective. Physical attraction may trump in the short run, at least in some relationships. But without shared beliefs and attitudes, compatible personalities, and good emotional support for one another, a relationship is unlikely to last. The fourth aspect of relationship that we should consider is the partner's ability to open to one another. In a well-functioning relationship, the partners come to know one another very well, warts and all. No one is perfect, and the crucible of relationship is bound to expose one's foibles and shortcomings, as well as all of one's positive attributes. Being willing to let one's underwear be seen requires vulnerability. One needs to trust one's partner to be kind, accepting, and supportive, not critical or rejecting. Perfectionists who expect the inhuman from themselves or from their partners are likely to be guarded, and they're unlikely to focus on loving, support, and acceptance for their partner. The resulting friction can cause a relationship to fray. So, now that we've got some idea of what relationship is, we can consider how we learn to relate to other humans. That understanding can make us aware of some biases or inclinations that we may bring into our relationships. Understanding those can in turn help us build better relationships. Of course, we don't come into this world already knowing how to connect with our fellow human beings. As infants, we don't initially even know about the existence of other people. The infant's focus is on itself and on its own immediate needs. Humans are an altricial species, meaning that we're born basically helpless and develop our survival capabilities over a long, parentally sheltered period of learning. There's an important and influential topic in developmental psychology called attachment theory. In brief, that theory proposes that we initially learn how to relate to others through our relationship with our first caregiver, usually an infant's mother. An infant learns whether to expect to have its needs, such as feeding, met, or not. It also learns whether the caregiver can be counted on to be reliably present or not. We'll save attachment theory for a later discussion. It really is worth its own in-depth consideration. For now, though, we'll just say that the child's earliest caregiver interactions result in either a, quote, securely attached child or a, quote, insecurely attached one. There are three different styles of insecure attachment, by the way, avoidant, ambivalent, and disorganized. We'll explore those styles and their relationship implications in a later episode of Two Open Doors. Securely attached children 
tend to know how to create and manage relationships with other kids. They're usually able to play nicely with others. Since they feel safe and valued, they're also confident enough to be avid explorers of their world. In contrast, insecurely attached children experience different sorts of relationship-building challenges. Lacking a secure home base and a strong sense of self-worth, they're less likely to explore or to take risks. The childhood attachment styles have corresponding adult versions. It would be pretty surprising if the strong patterns that we learn as children did not also manifest themselves in us as adults. Again, securely attached adults have well-honed relationship skills, typically, while insecurely attached adults often face relationship challenges. We'll explore those challenges in more depth in a future episode of Two Open Doors. Understanding one's attachment style can help make one aware of what sorts of relationship problems we may be inclined towards, and forewarned is forearmed. We can all benefit from a better understanding of our personal traits that can affect our relationships. Besides attachment style, many other factors also influence our relationship skills and inclinations. Those skills are not inborn, they're learned. Our interactions with other people, friends, family, authority figures, etc., through many years, all affect how we relate to others. Our life experiences can also come into play, such as a tendency toward fear or excessive caution, which may come from challenges such as not having had sufficient material resources earlier in life. Relationship skills and interests are a complicated brew of nature and nurture. Well, this is probably enough of a nickel tour of what relationship is and how we learn to relate to others. In upcoming Two Open Doors posts, we'll continue to explore how relationship plays out in our lives and how it affects us. In the meantime, I'd like to invite you to visit the Two Open Doors website at twoopendoors.com and the Two Open Doors Facebook group. Finally, I invite you to contact me directly by writing to me at claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, at twoopendoors.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I'll use your inputs to guide my work on future blog posts and podcast episodes. Thanks for visiting Two Open Doors. Two Open Doors.